Trump and Biden, Israel and Ukraine, mass shootings and pandas. Have you seen the headlines lately? Are you depressed yet? I'm not sure it'll ever get better, but we will deep dive today with Orrin McIntyre. Stay tuned. I'm James Polis. This is Zero Hour. Believe it or not, Oren McIntyre is the host of The Oren McIntyre Show and a columnist for Blaze News. He offers thought-provoking insights drawing from the best political thinkers throughout history to make sense of our current political climate in a way that is actually easy, I assure you, easy to digest. Welcome, Oren. Thanks for having me, man. So the simulation is definitely glitching. It's Trump versus Biden. It's the story that ate the world. Uh, seems to be, um, I mean, I think this is the first time in a long time since we've had uh, two presidents um, going head to head for for re-election, and uh, I mean, let's face it, they they both have their their strengths and weaknesses, and um, it's uh, it's anyone's guess as to how this is going to shake out, right? It's very strange because, of course, so much of the Republican Party feels like that Trump was denied his second term. And so you have this weird scenario where this guy who's kind of acting like an incumbent but not really is coming through this primary process. So we end up with this entirely almost irrelevant sideshow of debates leading up to this. But everyone's really wondering, is Biden even going to be around for this one? Will Trump get in? You know, Well, he's indicted, but will he get convicted or in some other way be prevented from running? And I don't think anyone's sure exactly how that's going to shake out. Biden is probably only going to debate corn pop in his own head during this election season. Yeah. Uh, Trump, not going to debate, right? Not happening? No, I mean, and I think that's exactly the right move by him. He doesn't want to be put on stage with these people and brought down with this. He wants it to seem like the sideshow that it kind of is, and that's the right move by him. He feels like he's going to get the nomination no matter what, and barring some kind of weird legal maneuver or some other reason why he can't go ahead and pick that up, the polls seem to show that he's going to take that pretty handily. Speaking of those other individuals on that stage, uh, you watched the most recent debates. Um, it's like all neoconservatism all the time, with the exception, I guess, of, of Vivek, who's, re who's playing the role of Trump on that stage, right? Yeah, it's a really interesting dynamic that Vivek's basically been the one who's kind of moved forward in the polls because he's just doing a really good imitation of Trump on stage, though it still feels that sometimes he doesn't have kind of, you know, Trump could go after people, Trump could make those jokes and still kind of rise above because there was always this kind of good-natured, casual way about what he did, as where Vec, it feels a little meaner. I don't know why. It probably shouldn't. He's saying the same kind of things. But otherwise, I think that, uh, you know, that, that that's the only interesting dynamic because for the most part, yeah, it's just Nikki Haley and uh, you know, Ron DeSantis arguing about which country should receive the most you know, foreign aid. You know, there are many amazing things about Donald Trump. He's an unusual person, you know, president with no political experience, no previous political experience, uh, very, very, very singular in other ways. I think one of the most striking things still to me about Donald J. Trump is um, is what you what you just alluded to, which is, you know, this is a guy who's accused of being like really mean spirited. He's always attacking people, belittling them, making fun of them, insulting them. And that's true. But he does it with this voice. His register's up here, you know, and it's always in some kind of joke. And I think that does make a difference. And I think we're seeing that difference because Vivek is out there, but he doesn't have the voice. And so it's not as funny and it's not as kind of soft. And, uh, and it does, you know, it does uh, land differently. Um, you saw it with Nikki Haley. She took, went, went from like uh, decorum, UN ambassador decorum to just calling him scum to his face in like five seconds. Uh, do, is that sort of like the dark Trump energy? Is that something that we're gonna see more of? Yeah, it's fascinating. Somehow we convinced ourselves that charisma wasn't an important part of a politician, even though everything shows us that that's absolutely critical. That's why I think a lot of people sold themselves the idea that Ron DeSantis or somebody else could do Trump without Trump because they would bring the competence to the to the office. But really, you need that kind of swagger. You need that ability to bring the heat, especially a lot of Republicans want to see someone who punches the establishment hard, takes down kind of those that have been pushing the establishment line for a long time, but can still do it again with that charisma and that soft nature, and I think that is critical. 
What's striking to me is, you know, you have two Indian Americans on that stage. Uh, and this is, I mean, it is still a little bit of a kind of weird cattle call clown car thing, but they're, this, th these are kind of like the final contestants, even if, you know, the real American Idol is like somewhere else doing a, a stadium tour. Um, that's pretty significant, right? That you got two Indian Americans uh, both sort of fighting each other openly uh, for that for that GOP presidential ticket, even if it's the undercard debate, even if it's for the, the sort of veep stakes. Um, are you expecting to see uh, Republicans make more inroads in some of these kind of sort of ethnic zones that were considered off limits? Trump's polling, I think last time I checked, at 22% among African Americans, higher than that among Latinos. Even a year ago, it was like, no, never going to happen. There's a hard ceiling. Is that all over? I think it's possible, but at the same time, I don't think it's something that you can really count on. What we've seen time and time again is whenever you think those inroads are going to be significant over a long amount of time, there always seems to be some scenario where a, a lot of those groups go back to the Democratic Party. I think that when you look again at elections like Ron DeSantis's in Florida, where he did seem to sway a lot of areas that are heavily Hispanic, even places like Miami-Dade that have been blue for a long time in his direction, it does say something about the fact that you could see many of these minority groups shift in the direction of the Republican Party over time, especially as they integrate more into the United States. But it's not something I think that the Republican Party should count on long term. They still need to make sure to appeal to their base. Well, the great counterpoint is, you know, it doesn't matter what the percentages are in the polls, all those votes are going to get harvested for the other side. <laughs> yeah, that, that is the biggest question that, of course, no one really wants to address throughout all of this is, does the election matter, right? Like, do, do these efforts really matter when the Democratic machine has, you know, manufactured this situation where they have this massive advantage when it comes to ballot harvesting, mail-in votes, these kind of things? If you haven't addressed those issues, are any of these inroads even going to make a difference? Well, it's a fair question. And, you know, I understand the frustration coming from the right where it's like, there's never going to be a real election again. Blow it all up. Just for, like the experiment has come to an end. It was a failure. Uh, but gosh, I mean, this kind of, you know, these, these political hijinks, uh, machine politics, this has been going on in the U.S. for, for centuries. Um, is it just time to, to get with the program for the right? For sure. I mean, they have to play the game either way. That's that's definitely part of it. You can't just say, oh, well, I can't believe my opponent has this advantage and I'm not going to do anything about this advantage and then I'm going to complain about this advantage. But at the same time, I think there is a machine politics at scale that's involved here that has never been around before. And it's also a question of whether Republicans can do this. Remember, a large amount of the Democratic effort was bankrolled by people like Mark Zuckerberg. And the Republicans don't really have the kind of people who are willing to pour that kind of effort in. The problem that the right has in general is just that the money that it has never seems to really be interested in building long-term infrastructure. They might go ahead and invest in an election or two, but until that immediately re uh, yields results, they, they just don't really think about the long term. Do you think that reflects uh, some deliberate choices taking place at the, the higher end of the donor level? Yeah, I mean, you, you imagine it has to. I mean, I really don't know what some of those conversations look like, but you wouldn't see this constant problem of system building on the right if you had people who had that long-term vision. Again, I'm not sure you know, what those small, you know, I'm, I'm not uh, I'm not involved in any of those backroom no, conversations, not yet. sadly. Not yeah, yet. No, I haven't, haven't gotten the invitations yet, but uh, but it feels like there there is just a lack of vision. You think these people would know this. I imagine there's, there's smart people involved in, in you know, kind of that high level discussion so they should understand that shortcoming so i'm not i'm not really sure what the disconnect is but it's clearly there well it sure seems like in some form it's related regardless of how how intentional to the way that you know this kind of neoconservative caucus keeps finding a way to reappear regardless of you know how many countries they've bombed this year or how unpopular their people are like they keep finding a way to sort of pop up on a little bit two clicks to the left or two clicks to the right um, is that constituency, uh, as small as it is, overrepresented among elites, is it ever going to go away? It doesn't feel like it because it seems like the profits are just too high. And I think a lot of people you know, have a mixture of understanding of there's going to be a global hegemon, or at least they think there's going to be a global hegemon in perpetuity, and it should be the United States for economic and security reasons, so they feel like they're justified in that. And of course, if they get rich or, you know, benefit in the long run, well, they did it while helping the United States and defending the people of the United States, so they feel pretty good about that. But this is always the problem with with right-wing patronage. You never seem to actually help the people directly. Democrats, they, they pay off their voters, whether you like that or not. It's true, and they directly see the benefit 
benefit. Republicans, not so much. Yeah, well, let's telescope out a little bit here because, uh, look, you know, being progressive means never having to say we're done. It, it, you don't have to actually identify a point and say this is the objective. The objective is to just keep progressing. And so the, the dilemma for the right politically, I think, on the large scale is um, the right does have to kind of pick a spot and say, no, like this is where we need to end up. This is where we need to land. Um, that can be tough to do when the right is as fractured as it is. You know, some people say like, well, maybe the, the, the place where we need to land is actually way over here, you know, someplace that we've never gone before. And that uh, kind of scares people. But then if you're like, well, okay, let's not be scary. Let's not, you know, don't, don't go full Franco, never go full Franco. <laughs> we got to go, we got to go over here where it's safe and where it's, it's William F. Buckley for the next 5,000 years. Um, and then you're just laughed at for saying we're standing athwart history, yelling stop, and history keeps going. How do you, you know, do you think, do you think that, uh, that with or without a second Trump term, is there any prospect of the right kind of rallying around one semi-stable spot and saying like, look, this is our vision, this is where we want to end up, and this is how we get there? I don't think so. I mean, we look at the left and like you said, it's easier for them because they're just deconstructing. Like there's always, you know, pr uh, progress is just the breaking down of Western civilization. It's breaking down of tradition. It's breaking down of Christendom. That, that they can always have some new avenue forward that way. For the right, you have to really coalesce around some idea of the good. And we have so many of those at this point on those, for those that constitute this, you know, this uh, fight against progressivism, that there doesn't seem to really be a place to go back to. I, most people on the right will say, oh, I like the founding fathers, or we should go back to, but they wouldn't be interested in going back to basically any time before the 1960s, and even then they would find that to be too conservative for their own tastes. So there's a lot of people who I think maybe are looking for, for a forward vision, but they can't even coalesce around, around something like, what does a family look like? What religion should we follow? What tradition are we actually looking at? There just seems to be too disparate of a, of a moral vision on the right to really bring something forward. Well, I think, I mean, that certainly seems right. Uh, I wonder if, if actually foreign affairs, which is historically of relatively less interest to the American voter, unless the world is literally on fire, um, I think foreign affairs may actually have an impact here. Um, the right feels I think pretty embarrassed and, and sorry for itself about the way that what progressives do is something that always happens to them. You know, we're sort of just like the victims of, of progressives doing progress and eating away at stuff and pushing us to a place we've never been before. Um, I mean, I know that you can argue about whether that's real progress or we should use a different word, but that's how it's styled. And I think there is a sort of like um, a rhetoric of being helplessly chained to progress in America, whether, well, tech, tech is just going to keep advancing and we just have to uh, somehow ride it out. Um, and that can be demoralizing on the right. But if you look at the international situation, like the reality is that things happen in the world that we don't control, that we're probably never going to control, and that probably, you know, we can't just like, well, hit the sanctions button, hit the bomb button. Like, yes, there are these tools of policy. Sometimes you want to use them. We can argue about those things. Uh, but you really have to be arrogant to the point of delusional or messianic in this kind of dangerously secular sense. George W. Bush, second inaugural, we're going to end evil in the world, right? No, you're not. And we saw you tried, you had your best shot, and you, you threw up a brick, and you're never going to have that shot again, probably. Um, the force of change internationally is something that uh, I think people on the right can say like, well, look, you know, we recognize that this is baked into the reality of being a human being on planet Earth. You can trust us to be realistic about that and to respond to things that happen to us in the world in a mature and effective manner. Whereas the left, you know, not as good at making that argument. Um, you look at the war in, in, uh, in Gaza, you look at the war in Ukraine. Um, it's easy to say these things are actually, you know, just not in America's interest. This is this is a step back for us. Um, it's easy to say that. But on the other hand, you know, you look at some of the, the proposed solutions that have been teed up. Just keep writing blank checks. Sure, there are Nazis out there, but there are Nazis or whatever. Um, you know, sure, uh, you don't want people uh, going around saying we should just nuke Gaza, but well, what are you going to do? Probably won't happen anyway. You know, these kinds of proposed solutions are also not very good for America. Um, and I think you see some of that awkwardness in the way that the Biden administration has been kind of pulled back and forth. You got divisions in the State Department, divisions even in the White House, where uh, even on the left, they're like at loggerheads about how to respond. Um, 
is this, is this not, though, an opportunity for the right? Not in the sense of saying like, oh, we lost our bid for world domination, let the bad guys win, uh, but an opportunity to actually evince some maturity and recognition that yes, we do share the world, and no, you're not gonna color revolution every uh, you know, major power on the, on, the, on the planet. You gotta find a way to make things work. No, I think you're right that that is an opportunity. That will, of course, require a big change, I think, in some of, some of the uh, conservative uh, basics when it comes to looking at the world. A lot of them, of course, are used to the idea that we're spreading democracy, we're the arsenal of freedom, you know, it's our job to make sure that every heart that yearns to be free, you know, George W. Bush style, is allowed to do so. And even though I think that's something that is waning, I think a lot of people are feeling exhausted with that. They are realizing that this is not a good use of their blood or treasure, their, their sons or daughters, uh, you know, or, or their future. I think there's still a knee-jerk reaction in the United States that every crisis is our crisis and we have to go out of our way to solve it. But there is that measured response that comes when you realize we are getting closer and closer to a multipolar world. And I think that if the Republican Party is the party that says, you know, you can dial that back, you can still have a understanding of foreign policy, you can still have a positive impact, but without pretending like you're the only one who has a regional interest or an understanding of the way that these different areas areas or zones are going to work, I think that will be a positive step, but it's going to take a lot of purging, frankly, of, of the neocon bias that still sits at the heart of a lot of conservative institutions. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think, uh, you know, a lot of Americans are are burned out, but at the same time, they do, uh, I, you know, I, I still think most Americans would consider themselves to be patriots. I still think, you know, most Americans would, uh, would like to see a world in which we are powerful and influential, but there isn't some massive draining cost to pay for that power and influence. Um, you know, if you talk about that for, for, um, for more than a few minutes, you start wandering, I think, into sort of this like uh, 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 dangerously no labels territory. Um, but there is this, there is still a center of gravity in American politics. And it is kind of this, this hope for like a, a practical centrism that preserves things that are good to preserve and that kind of junks the things that aren't working, right? I mean, I guess so, but what would what would they agree on that was good to preserve? I think it's almost impossible to find for most people that that kind of center. I mean, when you talk about the importance of being patriotic and having a positive yeah, kind of role in the world, well, what's more patriotic than just like protecting your own border? But we seem to find that to be impossible. Why can't the United States military protect the one border it was actually designed to protect in the first place? The fact that that's not continuously the first action that any government or any patriot Patriot wants to take kind of reveals the fact that we have a really hard time understanding what the good is for the nation on the mo just the most basic level. Well, I mean, I think there's definitely something to that, but you know, my 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 hunch, and I don't have data in front of me to to back this up, but look, how many Americans really are happy with what's going on at the border right now? Probably not a lot. Sure, there are some who are like, well, it, it really ought to be everyone on the entire planet because that's you know that's being a good neighbor. Everyone should want to be an American, so come on in. Yeah, there are some of those on the orange line, you know, in, in Vienna, Virginia or whatever, sort of like uh, a paid libertarian uh, mafia. Uh, but I think most Americans want things to just kind of calm down a little bit everywhere. Um, we are being dragged through this wrenching change, technology, the finance, the economy, the border, the culture war. Um, and it is becoming kind of more than the average American can keep up with. And so a lot of Americans are kind of like just turning the volume down on the set. You know, like, yes, I know the news is bad again today. And um, on the one hand, that is a more mature outlook, I guess. You don't want to be sort of just disappearing into your screen, consuming all that there is to consume every day. Then you can't actually live your life. Uh, but I do think there is, you know, there is there's, there's a center of gravity. I mean, yeah, I'm just going to invoke Vladimir Putin here. Why am I doing that? Well, Putin got up at one of these speeches that he gives. This was a year or two ago. And uh, whether it was propaganda or whether he was serious or how serious he was, less important to me than what he said, which was, look, Russians want just kind of a moderate conservatism. They have been through all these crazy changes. There was communism, and there wasn't communism. Then we, the oligarchs, and then they went away, and the ruble was worthless. And I was, you know, it was like a lot of wrenching, whipsawing change. And really what most Russians want is to just calm things down, have a predictable environment, start to build your life up again. Um, yeah, maybe. I mean, I'm, I'm seeing indications that a lot, of, a lot of Russians are actually a lot more nationalistic and a lot more touchy 
on, uh, on sort of Russia's global position than Putin himself. I think there's an impression among a lot of Americans like, oh, it's Putin and Xi, you know, these are the bad guys, it's the autocrats. We get rid of the autocrats and the people of, of Russia or the people of China uh, won't be as crazy. I think that's, uh, uh, that's a misperception. But I do think that, you know, that, that kind of aura of, hey, you know, most people just want to kind of like chill for a while that Putin laid out there, I think that's, that's, that's happening in the US. Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of support for Trump on the right. Why is there that support? Is it really because people want America to be this striding globe, striding colossus again? Do they really want America to be great again? Or do they really just want America to be like, okay again? They want an America that can wake up in the morning, look at itself in the mirror, and not just kind of like have, feel something, a part of itself die inside. No, I'm with you that, that that probably is the desire of most Americans. But unfortunately, when has the desire of most Americans actually driven American politics? I mean, one of the first red pills I had on democracy was the fact that you look at the numbers when it comes to the popularity of large-scale migration in the United States. And it was always, always very bad, even when it came to Democrats for most, you know, until about 10 years ago. And still, it turned out that both the Republicans and the Democrats were, po were constantly pushing for open borders or more visas for work those kind of things, even though the population didn't want it. Most of the population wanted uh, you know, economic protectionism, closed borders. They, they wanted a lot of things that just weren't offered to them by either the Republicans or Democrats on a regular basis. The problem is we have a constant political revolution going on inside the United States. And this cold civil war is dr what's driving this the, you know, radical reaction on both sides. And the problem is even if most people just want things to calm down, they just want people to stop and let them just you know buy a home and have a family and chill out for a little while the power that is constantly freed up and floating around in the united states means that both sides have to drive the fervor higher and higher at every moment you must start taking care of your liver now more than ever why because the latest data from the american heart association indicates that adults with fatty liver were 3.5 times more likely to have heart failure than those without the American Liver Foundation says that 100 million Americans have fatty liver, which means many people are at risk. We throw everything at our livers. Cholesterol, alcohol, toxins, Tylenol, statins, cigarettes. That's why so many of us have a sluggish, fatty liver that makes us gain weight and lose energy. For decades now, your liver has helped you with over 500 key functions every day. It's time you help your liver. There is a solution, liver health formula an all-natural supplement which contains 12 clinically proven botanicals that help recharge and protect your liver. Manufactured right here in the USA and approved by American doctors. You can try Liver Health Formula and receive a free bottle of nano-powered omega-3 to keep your heart healthy too. It's a 64% discount in total. Order today at getliverhelp.com james and claim your free gift. That's getliverhelp.com james. Well, you know, I think you're absolutely right about that. And, and I will admit that I'm sort of guiding us in a, in a direction for a reason, which is the motto used to be freedom isn't free. And I think the motto that has been foisted on us now is freedom is unaffordable. Oh, I'm so sorry, citizens of this great country. We just really don't have the luxury of slowing down, of calming down. We have to ratchet things up even more. If, if we don't advance, if we are not uh, the pathbreakers on AI, it's going to be the Chinese. If we don't let all the immigrants in, we aren't going to have any workers. And just you run down the entire list of policy priorities and hot button issues. And it's like, sorry, you actually don't have a choice. If you were as smart as we are, you would understand that we have no choice but to do all these things that we're doing that are directly against your interest. Yeah, no, I, I think that it, the constant acceleration is exactly right. But I, again, I don't see either of these parties slowing that down at the moment. Uh, you, again, you see the right attempting to do that a little bit with Trump, but you see the backlash that followed after it and the, and the desire to replace him in pretty much every way by the establishment. I just don't see a, a point at which the the elites are going to back down from this. I mean, we went from kind of the amazing strain that the global elites put on their system when it came to COVID, and then they immediately went into the Ukrainian war thinking that they would be able to, you know, uh, make Vladimir Putin fold immediately with economic sanctions and other things. We see the immediate failure of their sovereignty 
soft power in that area. And now we're just, amazing, I guess we're just done with that. They're like, you know, too, too bad, everybody. We're moving on to the next no thing. No more cookies in the cookie jar. Yeah, they just don't seem to slow down no matter how hard they're pushing everything. Yeah, well, I mean, look, we can talk about, and I'm curious to, for your thoughts about exactly, you know, where can you put your thumb on the scale to counteract that? Who is it who, you know, we can, whether it's inserting people into politics or pulling people out that's going to change that calculus. But before we get there, I do want to just flag. I mean, look, I've got, I've got friends on, on the tech side. I've got friends on the political side, the policy side, uh, sort of somewhere in the kind of culture and arts. And everyone's kind of trying to figure out on the right how to um, strike the right kind of relationship with tech. And I think there's a real risk that um, in their desperation, folks on the right will say like, okay, tech, innovate our way out of this. We tried the political, we tried the culture war, none of it's working, we're starting to freak out. Can't you just like build a thing that will blast us off from this like hell world that we're stuck on, whether uh, literally or, or figuratively, and really just kind of chain the hopes of whether you call it the conservative movement or the, the MAGA movement or whatever, to the tech lords. Um, do you think that that's a real risk? I think it's an inevitability because I think that politics is inevitably moving you leftward. I think the dialectic of a democratic politics always moves you in the progressive direction. It's inescapable, which is why I think exit is the natural uh, attempt by the right to kind of remove itself from this inevitable leftward drift of politics. And so tech looks like, you know, because you've run out of space to run to in, in the world, there, you, can't, you can't just go to a, a new country. There is no new world to discover anymore on this planet. You know, all the ideas are, let's go to Mars or let's escape into cyberspace. There, there has to be some area we can, you know, uh, Faustian man can manufacture some other place in which he can actually exit to. And so I think that's a very natural reaction to the right. And I think they are identifying a, a core problem inside the political process for what we understand as the right wing. As long as your politics are primarily democratic, the left will actually always have an, an advantage. That's not some illusion that we're looking at. That's a real mechanical problem for the right. Well, and I, you know, I think ultimately it raises some questions about what the left means. You know, it's it's a term that gets thrown around a lot for obvious reasons. Uh, it emerged from a sort of parliamentary democracy, right? Is there sort of those guys literally on the other on the other side across the aisle? Um, it, there is a phenomenon there. It isn't just leftism. It's a thing that we can understand. And I think you're, you, what you're saying is is responsive to that. But the insanity of this, I mean, the sales pitch is. We've tried every other form of progress, and they've all uh, ended in tears. That's why technological progress is the, you know, it's the last one in the box, and this is the one that's going to save us. All of the forms of progressivism have failed, but tech progressivism, that's the one that's going to win. Where's the evidence? Yeah, I don't think there is. I mean, I will say that it, it's, I think you can have that illusion for a good while because obviously when you go from, you know, the horse and buggy to the car to the plane, you know, to, to the spaceship in the course of 100 years, you can sell yourself this idea that you're going to, you know, you're going to have this eternal progress. But eventually we are seeing the fact that, yeah, lifespans went up, went up, went up, but now they're going down. We're seeing that this general affordability, this uh, middle, burgeoning middle class lifestyle, all of these things that you know, prosperity and progress were going to continuously bring us, it looked like they could go on for a good while, but now we're hitting the hard limits, especially when it comes to social organization and kind of the wear and tear that's happening that you know, progress has had on social fabric. And I think a lot of people thought that the technology would just paper over that, but it's very clear at this point that it seems to be accelerating it. And I don't know, I mean, I'd be interested in your, your opinion if you think that they can actually get a hold of this. Are, are human beings even capable of making these decisions, especially as the decision space shrinks as we accelerate the, the uh, kind of rate of change? Yeah, well, I think, you know, I, I, I don't want to pretend that the the great stagnation argument is just totally bogus. Like, yes, we do see certain kinds of, of socioeconomic stagnation. And yes, there are certain policies that you can kind of trace that to. And yes, like restoring to Americans a, um, a more confidently proactive and competent relationship with their own technology would be good. And if you have to make the choice between a constitutional system where um, where uh, 
America as we know it extends into cyberspace um, where you can be an American on the internet, uh, where you, your, your constitutionally protected natural rights extend to your interactions, access, and use of technology. When, when the choice is between that or where the Biden administration is leading us, which is, well, no, you actually can't be an American online. You actually don't have constitutional protections in cyberspace. We actually are like cloning you and porting you into this sim society that we totally control and nationalize. Like, the choice is clear here. And yeah, some mad scientists might create some stuff that is like bad, but constitutional, you have to take that risk. We take that risk with, you know, with guns. And, and yes, there's a cost to that. But when the choice is that stark, I mean, you got to go with, with America rather than going with this post-American monstrosity that's being built around us, mostly in cyberspace. But that's starting to penetrate the real world the same way that, that software and online technology has been penetrating the real world for a long time. So I understand that argument. Um, I, I know that you know when, when the choice is stagnation versus progress, it makes a lot of sense to say, well, let's take our chances with progress. This is America after all. You can go down that road without worshiping progress. At the same time, like stagnation, is, it, is that really the problem? Or is the problem really corruption and not stagnation? And I think if we sort of reframe that, or if we just be a little bit more spiritually honest with ourselves, it's not stagnation that's the root of the problem, it's corruption. And I'm talking spiritual corruption, I'm talking economic corruption, I'm talking political corruption, all up and down the chain. You see it everywhere. You see it in all of our institutional life. You see it in the way that all the patronage ne uh, networks work. You, California, you see it in nepotism. I mean, it's really just saturating our political life and our private lives. You know, Ashley Madison, cheating sites, uh, seeking arrangements, you know, uh, just pornography itself, OnlyFans, they've kind of cleaned up their act a little bit, but if you go and trace the provenance of OnlyFans, uh, running through, you know, some some kid, Ukrainian oligarch with a rap sheet, sort of buying OnlyFans off of this father-son investment banker duo in London. Really tawdry stuff. You know, the whole Epstein thing. I mean, in some sense, this is this is the way that it's always been on planet Earth. But in another sense, you know, the the corruption we are inventing newer and newer forms of corruption, channels of corruption, paths of corruption. Uh, through technology and also just through the uses and abuses of human nature. And if we recenter our political life around stamping out that kind of corruption, I think that we may be able to understand that you can have progress, you can have technological advancement, but it doesn't have to be unbounded. It doesn't have to be blast us into a new dimension. It doesn't have to be turn us into superhumans or posthumans or transhumans. It can be, hey, we actually do have the, the wherewithal to impose not legal constraints, not theocratic church and state become one constraints on technological development, but spiritual constraints. Uh, ones that recognize, you know, who are we really as human beings? And uh, what is it that is actually generative among human beings? Uh, that isn't just a simulation of life, that isn't a simulation of spirit, but is the real thing, you know, moving within human beings. This just, you know, this comes out of Alexis de Tocqueville. That just the, the workings of one heart upon the other, kind of the only way to make political life generative, to make social life generative. He wasn't just making this stuff up, you know, as, as you said, this is, this is sort of, sort of deep-seated realities about our anthropology, about our social psychology. And if we recover those and apply it under the problem of corruption, I think that we do actually have a pretty good shot at recognizing that uh, that full, you know, uh, uh, accelerationism is going to lead to the misery that it always has when it realizes that it's just going to try to transcend itself until you, you know, instead of having a blackout, you have a whiteout. It's just fully saturated with illuminated information. That's going to lead to a bad end. Um, but also just wallowing in stag stagnation, you know, sloth, laziness, defeat, surrender, fatalism, that's bad too. Uh, the middle way is the way of, of going after corruption, and, uh, and I think that we have a shot at doing that. Yeah, I think that what we're going to be selecting for in our post-postmodern world is those that will choose the real over the simulacrum. But I think in order to do that, to, to bound things, as you were saying, you have to reduce the scale of social organization. Virtue can only be or can only be expressed inside a community. It can only be expressed inside relationships with others, real relationships, not ones that are abstracted over you know thousands of miles or digitally across you know entire continents. It has to be something that's done face to face. I think inside a, a certain level of interaction and dependency. I think you have to reestablish those 
those human relationships, even if there's a virtual part of them or a digital part of them, if you're ever going to control that impulse by people. And I think that that's going to be very hard for most, but the people who are going to make it through this, the, pe the countries that are going to win, the, the, the peoples who are going to win, the communities are going to win are the ones that are selecting for that ability. The alternative seems to be just like mass shooter culture. Yeah. Uh, I mean, seriously, you know, you, you talk about corruption and spiritual corruption and uh, whether it's the, the Nashville manifesto that finally got out, even though we were told that it would basically cause like a complete societal collapse. If this gets out, it's just going to people are in the streets, going to be free. It's not what happened. Um, we saw we saw the pages from the manifesto. They were horrendous and terrible and evil and sort of. You know, a lot of people uh, accurately predicted the contents of that manifesto as far as, as we've seen it. Um, but low, in fact, you know, those, those evil hayseeds out there in rural America did not go on a killing spree in the name of freedom. I mean, like, we know that so much of the violence in, in America comes from mental illness, uh, whether it's it's something that bubbles up from from corruption and stagnation, or is actively encouraged and supported, state-sponsored mental illness, um, and uh, and uh, and the alternative to that is is what is it just putting piling more and more hopes on centralized power to make the pain go away? No, it's not. Um, it's to go back down. Tocqueville, you know, based Tocqueville, uh, Tocqueville said like the 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 important thing about the American town, the township is that it's small enough so that people can govern themselves, but it's large enough so that it can satisfy some of the ambitions of an ordinary person. Um, and in, the, in that sense, it's kind of a curb on that, that longing to just accelerate into, you know, I'm gonna be the God King of the universe. Uh, so I think there's a lot to be said. Um, how do we get there? How do we get that shift from, uh, from ever greater centralization to, hey, wait a minute, let's rediscover. Um, I mean, localism sounds so like low T. Um, what, how do we rediscover like high T localism? <laughs> Well, I mean, like you said, the de Tocqueville is all about these voluntary associations, right? It's the, it's the willingness of Americans to kind of stitch together this social fabric without the force of the state, without some kind of overbearing centralization. And that comes because each person was bound by this idea of community and was exercising individual virtue. And of course, he was far from the only one to recognize the central nature of that for a constitutional republic. We saw many founding fathers cite the fact that the constitution is only good for a virtuous people who believe in the you know, revelation of the Bible, and it's not really good for anyone else. And the fact is that, unfortunately, we've kind of created a country that is no longer that, and so therefore the Constitution no longer governs us properly. It is no longer sufficient to govern those who are no longer virtuous. So how do we get back to that? Well, it's going to require virtue, but like you said, I think virtue has to start closer to the ground. And localism, I guess, is an exciting word for that, but the only other thing to recognize is that without strong community leadership, you're just gonna watch these things fall apart. You can constantly focus on this nationwide savior complex, but this has never worked for us. It's not gonna work now. You're gonna have to take responsibility for your family, you're gonna have to take responsibility for your community, you're gonna have to build virtue at home in the, in the areas where you live. And until you have areas that are governed that way, you're never gonna see anybody re-inculcating this idea of self-government in a way that's going to manifest itself across the United States. So let's talk about this, because I think there's actually a lot here. Uh, Joe Biden, um, not a popular president, uh, certainly not a powerful president by, by historical measures, uh, but a guy who has, hanging up in his personal office in the White House, a large portrait of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. This is the guy who he's looking up to at this time. Uh, I'm sure some of this is political signaling, but I think that he's gen gen genuinely uh, hoping to kind of channel FDR in some way. Um, the FDR phenomenon, uh, I think, is something that's oftentimes tapped and referenced uh, as a counter-argument to what you're saying, to your claim that, like, look, you know, America has always run on and gotten by on uh, locality. Like that's where the rubber has hit the road. And for all the sort of ebbs and flows of national politics and whether it's, I mean, you know, there's some major things went down, civil war, depression, whatever, uh, be that as it may, um, ultimately it's we've lived or died on the fiber of our local communities. I think that's generally correct. 
Um, but then you look at the Depression, and then you look at the rise of Franklin Roosevelt, and you look at President for Life, four terms, he would have been elected to a fifth term if he had been robo-FDR, and I think that there are people out there at this, you know, walking the earth today who would like nothing more than to have a robo-FDR that we could entrust the fate of our nation to for the next 500 years. Um, kind of a mixed bag, FDR, just judging by, you know, as, as objectively as is possible. He, he tried a lot of stuff. He threw a lot of things at the wall. Some of them stuck. Some of them didn't. Some of them were uh, effectively overturned. Uh, some of them seem to be helping for a minute and then not so much anymore. Um, how do you respond to the, not just the mixed bag that is FDR's track record, but this kind of larger issue of like, hasn't at some point America become uh, somehow spiritually committed to the strong leader and spiritually committed to, um, to nation building at home? No, I mean, it's certainly true that the imperial presidency is an American uh, tradition. You look at somebody like Lincoln or FDR, and it's very clear that the Constitution was more or less a speed bump to kind of their vision to where the, they wanted to drive the country. The problem when you look at FDR is like, yes, of course, you can look at the Depression and you can look at World War II and say that these are critical turning points in American history, and of course, that's that's absolutely right. But the tra transition there was, of course, to the modern modern managerial state. I'm sure you're familiar, James Burnham, and the argument that, of course, you know, you, you, we look at fascism and communism and liberal democracy, and we see them as these wildly different forms of government, but actually all three are really looking at the, the rise of a centrally planned managerial state. And so FDR's version of that certainly transforms the nation in a particular way and brings us into a modern world, one which we are still kind of looking at these institutions and structures that he made the central part of the United States and drove us away from localism. Same true of Lincoln, by the way, uh, though not to the degree of the managerialism, but certainly driving us away from the idea of, of localism and, and a more federated government. And so I think that it's true that that, has been, that was a transformational moment in the United States. Maybe it got us through that moment, maybe it didn't, maybe there was an alternative. It's hard to do counterfactuals, you know, looking back at this. But what's clear is that we are now living in that mode of the, that, that idea of the United States. And is that perpetual? Is that the true United States? Or is that was that a permanent transformation, transformation in the United States and we can never go back to the local? If that's true, I think we're seeing the end of that. We're, we're seeing that stretch to its organizational limits. And I think we're seeing uh, kind of the breaking points as we look at the, our kind of global American empire and where it's failing. For years, Hollywood has been lacking when it comes to stories of redemption. Movies and TV shows have trended toward the anti-hero, the flawed person who makes no effort to change and just becomes worse and worse as the story goes on. Well, here's some great news. The Blind, the true story of the Robertson family is now available for purchase on Blaze TV. Maybe you've made a mess of your life. Maybe someone you love is in a dark place. Maybe all of the above. If you or someone you know feels beyond redemption, you need to watch this movie. You'll see there is always hope. Always. The Blind takes you on an incredible journey through the life of Phil Robertson, giving you an intimate look into the man behind the legend and the trials, the triumphs, and the values that have shaped him through the years. While The Blind wasn't a Blaze Media production, since Phil is such a big part of our Blaze TV family, we wanted to make sure you had the opportunity to stream it right here. Because it isn't ours, we can't include it as part of the subscription. But if you'd rather purchase it and stream it here instead of Apple and Amazon, we wanted to make sure the opportunity was there. Act now. Don't miss this opportunity to own The Blind, a Phil Robertson story on Blaze TV. Buy it today at blazetv.com slash theblind for $19.99. That's blazetv.com slash the blind. It's interesting to track the, the progress of uh, centralization or, or nationalization and the rise of managerialism. Um, obviously, these two things can be very complementary. Uh, you definitely saw it with the New Deal. You saw it uh, in the sort of high, high modernism of America uh, with the, the whiz kids, the Kennedy administration and all that sort of thing. Um, and I think Burnham's critiques of managerialism are very sound. I think they're so sound that a lot of the tech lords today are like, see, that's why we need, well, me to be sort of doing whatever I want and you going along with it. Because the alternative is you have the, you know, the, the professional managerial class sort of like telling you that you are exhibiting insufficient enthusiasm for like, you know, 
it disabled female veterans day in the office celebration. And that for that reason, you have to like, you know, d d perform these tasks, whatever. Uh, yeah, that's not totally bogus. That is a real thing. Um, however, you look at the trajectory of, of nationalization. You look at the trajectory of centralization and managerialism might best be seen as kind of just an epiphenomenon of that process. Something that happened to advance the centralization and nationalization project and so it was adopted and it was adopted wholesale and kind of, eh, you know, soft imposed because it was like what smart people thought was best. And so we had this kind of command economy coming out of World War II and it's like, well, you, why would you not trust the smart people? It's their job to be smart and they say that we're gonna rearrange business in this way and so we're, we're gonna do it. Um, where did that trend, where did that, that, uh, that impetus, uh, where did that nationalization, centralization agenda come from? Um, I'm of the mind that it came from New England, that it was always in New England, that it came from New England. Yes, they had townships and everything. Yes, there was a lot to like about those arrangements relative to, you know, you look back in Europe in the, in the 1500s and, you know, and I wonder a lot of people left. Um, it was a mess. They were wrestling with things that Americans were fortunate to not ever have to, to wrestle with so far, um, at least in terms of you know, wars of religion and all that. Although arguably the Civil War was a war of religion. Um, do you think that, uh, that, that that makes sense? And if it does make sense, um, if New England, if the Wasps, being basically a nation within a nation and being in control of the United States more than any other sort of socio-ethnic group in the US. Uh, they did have a pretty good run, but it does seem to be coming to an end. And if it is coming to an end, uh, it seems like a lot of those folks um, are, are hoping to just hand the torch to the Wokies. Um, I think that that is more of a through line than people wanna, wanna admit. Um, Josh Mitchell uh, wrote a book about this, American Awakening, how wokeness just kind of adopted all of these patterns of like Protestant theology and that's why it's taken off because it's consonant with, in a certain way, what was taking place at the origins of American life. If, however, if the sort of WASP project is coming to an end, does that mean that we are likely to see whether through a, a manifestation on the left or on the right, an end to that whole kind of nationalism and, and centralization uh, undertaking. I don't think so because I think Bertrand de Juvenal is right that centralization is always a arms race and that you always have to compete with other nations. Whatever the excuse is going to be and the American excuse does seem to be wokeism, I think you're right that that is the transition that's going on. That's going to be the new political theology that uh, kind of justifies the continued expansion of the managerial elite. But you have to understand that the reason that gets so powerful is that can liquidate the particular cultures of other nations when you need to globalize. Why are you running uh, ads for transgenderism with Starbucks in India? Well, because you need to globalize it. You need to break down any kind of idea of family there, just like you're trying to break it down here. You need to have a homogenized culture so you consistently apply managerial techniques across multiple cultures without having any particularities slow down the efficiency of your bureaucracies. And so I don't think that that's going to transition things away because I think this is kind of the guiding ideology of globalism. And I think that's going to continue until it kind of reaches its organizational limits, which it will hit. Okay, so let's talk about those. Uh, they're out there, I, I agree with that. Um, how, uh, how does it play out? Um, how do we know what they are? How, how would we know that we're starting to hit them? Uh, and what's what's waiting for us on the other side? Well, the first thing we've got is a competency crisis. I think we're elevating people due to their ideological adherence to wokeness, to the to the kind of managerial theocracy, rather than their ability to execute their jobs. And that breaks down because kind of the selling point of managerialism originally was its efficiency. This Weberian idea of having the you know the, the we we can't figure out what's good. We no longer have a shared vision of good. So the only thing we can figure out is what's efficient, what's neutrally and objective 
effectively efficient. That was kind of the selling point of this idea. That's why we put our scientists in charge. That's why we put our manners in charge, put our experts in charge of everything. They're our new priests and they can divine efficiency and produce the miracle. They can make it rain when it comes to making your life longer and you having a bigger house and you know having more streaming digital you know entertainment or whatever. But it's very clear that the competency crisis that's following that is going to break down a lot of this stuff. We see it with things like the supply chain. You have just-in-time delivery. We're shaving every little inch of resistance off of profit so that we can make sure that things you know uh, have, have the lowest cost when they get delivered. But that means that we're just stretching our ability to produce critical things to its limits. We're not able to have, you know, we, we figured out during the COVID crisis that the place where the pandemic came from also produced all of our antibiotics. And so we all Coincidence, sudden, yeah. sir. How <laughs> and, dare you? And so, and, and we haven't learned anything from that. We haven't reshored like any of this critical industrial capacity during this. And so eventually that stuff's going to break down. We're going to see the stri that stretching and people are going to want to make sure, hey, I, I would like my, you know, groceries to arrive. I would like my streets to be safe. I would like my planes to land reliably. And apparently the current managerial elite cannot do that if they continue to go along with these woke ideas. All right. So what are you anticipating? Are you anticipating a meltdown? Is it going to, uh, you know, is, are we going to make it to uh, to Election Day 2024 with everything in one piece? Yeah, I think it's going to be slow. I, I think we're going to have, I mean, the, the, the society is still functioning for the most part. We've got clean running water here. That, that's, that's nice, uh, you know, uh, for most of our cities and that kind of thing. So I don't think there's going to be any kind of immediate collapse, some kind of sudden issue. But I think over time, we're going to see that the central bureaucracy is just failing. We're going to see the end ability of kind of the federal government to continue to bring services and those kind of things to different regionalities. And it's going to be regional leadership and its ability to kind of deliver alternatives that's going to become more and more interesting to people. I think that's why places like Florida are really important because they're showing some ability to push back against kind of the central government. And even though we haven't crossed any uh, bright red lines when it comes to that, eventually you, you will get there. People will get tired of a central government that's just making their life deliver deliberately worse, and that's where things get interesting. Uh, here's something interesting. You said regional, not state level. Did, was that intentional? Do you think there are going to be regional blocks rising? It'll start state level, but I think it's probably likely that you're going to get confederation. Well, we don't call we it don't that. Say that. I mean, uh, that's a no -no. loose gatherings of like-minded states uh, that will that will share infrastructure ideas, will share common interests, will share an interest in uh, not relying on the central government for all of these things that they used to. Uh, I think that's going to be critical moving forward, and so the those alliances will probably be regional at some point. Well, this has been semi-memory hold, but there was a moment during during COVID, during the first first year or so, where these these regional blocks of states did emerge, where it was like, well, we really need to be coordinating our policies because we're all we're all neighbors. Uh, it's not terribly hard to see how that kind of thing might unfold. I mean, the 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 Pacific West is. Pretty self-contained. Gavin Newsom uh, hasn't hasn't called California a nation state for a while, but he was doing it repeatedly and conspicuously um, when Trump was president. Uh, New England, we already talked about New England. I mean, the South is still, in spite of it all, still very distinctly the South. And then you got Texas, uh, which has been its own deal for for a long time. Um, which of these which of these regional areas do you think is the most interesting right now in America? I mean, I'm I'm a Floridian, so I'm I'm a big fan of uh, you You're know a Florida man. The Dominion, yeah, Dominion of, of Ron DeSantis. Uh, you know, uh, peace be upon him. You know that that's that's kind of been uh, very interesting again to kind of see that separation. I, I think that. Of course, the fact that he entered the race with Trump kind of hamstrung him a little bit with kind of him being this model governor about kind of how to create a regional power base outside of Washington, D.C. But I still think he provides a really important example for that. I think it's very clear that people like Greg Abbott have been aping kind of his efforts for a long time, as they should, by the way, nothing against him. And hopefully he'll do more of that. And so, yeah, I think I think you will. Again, it takes moments like COVID, those crisis moments to really get people to notice the difference. But there's a reason that you've seen the great uh, the, the great migration into Florida, even though some of us aren't big fans of that. But there's a reason you've seen that population shift. People got tired of living in liberal uh, you know, uh, parts of the country. And when the next crisis comes, they're going to be more concentrated. They're going to be more geographically aligned than they've ever been before. We didn't talk about DeSantis during the, the debate portion of this chat. So let's let's get to him now. He's termed out, right? So uh, 
it's the White House or what? What's the future hold for Ron DeSantis? Yeah, well, uh, for instance, Rick Scott, when, who was, used to be the governor of Florida, became a senator. That, that's an option for him, I suppose, to, to eye the other Senate seat, though I don't think Marco Rubio is probably going anywhere anytime not. soon. Uh, so, not, so, not willingly. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's an interesting question. I, I mean, he had, it felt like they went ahead and got rid of the resign to run amendment anyway. I feel like if he had just spent that political capital on just getting rid of the term limit, he could have been in, in a better place, but that, that's kind of not what he cho- chose to do. So I'm not really sure where he goes next politically. It's a question of whether he's wounded himself permanently with his current presidential run. I think while many of us are fans of his governorship, he's kind of damaged himself on the national level with with kind of the Republican base. And I don't know if he can put himself back into that golden boy status he had during that COVID moment. Yeah, and he's not the only one with a kind of question mark hanging over him. You've got Blake Masters, who's now gonna be running for Congress, or I guess he's, he's announced uh, running for Congress in Arizona, having almost made the Senate. Uh, Arizona's a crazy place. I like to watch it. I think there are kind of some weird bellwethers there. Phoenix is uh, is now one of the biggest cities in the country, and you got kind of got it all. You got uh, you got red red staters. You got crazy libertarian types. You got uh, sort of spa hippies, cartels, um, wokies taking over some schools, but Christian academies out there doing well. Um, what do you think is going to happen to Blake? Does he have a future? Yeah, I mean, I I won't pretend to be an expert on the horse race politics in Arizona, but I will say that Blake Masters is a very impressive guy. I think a country that can't find a place for him in political leadership is saying more about itself than it is about Blake Masters. So I certainly hope that he finds a home somewhere uh, in the American government uh, where he can provide some leadership because I think that's the kind of guy that's critical. Yeah, I like that. Just just turning it around. It's like a, it's like a, a good defense attorney. This isn't about Blake. It's about you, America. <laughs> you need to find a place for this guy. Uh, I think there's something to that. Um, uh, who's the brightest light on the political scene right now, in your opinion? Oh, that's a that's a good question. Um, I'm not. I'm not long on a lot of particular American politicians. I don't think we've seen kind of the leadership class that's gonna get us to the other side yet. I think those guys are still in the incubator somewhere. I think it's good to see guys like J.D. Vance uh, kind of emerge. I think it's positive to see some, again, a more nationalistic tone to conservatism and understanding that we have to care more about the people and less about some abstract uh, slate of neocon talking points that we've been knocking around for the last, you know, how many years. I think it's good to see that shift, and I think there is a leadership class that is slowly but steadily growing inside some of these incubating institutions that are going to start moving us that direction. But I can't say that I have one person that I think is really going to be a guiding light. I probably would have said Ron DeSantis, uh, you know, a year ago, but I don't know now. I teased the pandas at the beginning of the segment. We got about five minutes left. Uh, the the news item is uh, China is recalling the pandas, like uh, like you you recall an ambassador if you're having a really bad time diplomatically. They're calling the pandas home. Uh, it's, I think Dallas just said said bye bye to uh, to what what few pandas were remaining in the U.S. Uh, it's really crazy to look back when Donald Trump first began his his run for the White House. He was pretty much the only guy out there saying, look, uh, China is not peacefully rising. They're not our, they're our sort of like, you know, friendly competitor. Um, it's, uh, it's a relationship that needs to be reassessed from the ground up. And uh, he was, uh, of course, denigrated for this, attacked like, oh, warmongering Donald Trump. What are you talking about? This is globalization. This is, we, you know, we'd open, we don't want free markets and keep the sea lanes open and China's not the bad guys. That's xenophobia. Uh, and fast forward to today, and pretty much everyone at the elite level is like, well, yes, actually, uh, we're back in the era of, of great power conflict and, uh, you know, the Chinese are a big problem. And, um, and so the question is, uh, is Donald Trump going to come back? Do they actually want him to come back? Is there a scenario where things get so bad, Biden administration fails so badly, that uh, the powers that be go, you know what, let's just hand it all to Trump and make him figure it out? Yeah, I, I think there's, there's a certain desire to see that as, an, as a possibility because that might mean that the ruling elites are still competent. 
somewhere, right? That they might recognize at some point that that they could at least make the smart political move of handing all these problems to Trump and just hanging that around his neck and letting it sink him. I think the thing that'll keep that from happening was probably the events of January 6th. Uh, Trump is, I don't think, a hyper-competent guy, but I think Trump does represent a real feeling of kind of American identity, a real understanding of kind of middle America that they are on a certain time limit with uh, kind of their way of life and their identity. And I think that that scares the elites. I don't think they want somebody, even if Trump is somewhat incompetent in certain ways, they don't someone want someone who can galvanize that energy the way that only Trump really has shown himself able to do. That was always the problem with thinking that you could have Trumpism without Trump. They didn't understand what Trump was. They thought Trump was, I don't know, sound bites or some kind of policy set, but that wasn't the case. Trump was a feeling about America. It was a feeling about American identity and where we were going and who we could be. And I don't think they want that coming back to the surface because that's the kind of stuff that they're trying to snuff out with globalism. Are they gonna put Donald Trump in jail? I don't think they will, but I, I wouldn't mortgage my house on it. How, do, they, do they just want to watch him squirm? They're going to they're let him run? They're going to let him win? I think that if they didn't let him run, they would put themselves in a situation where the, the, the kind of situation they thought they were going to get into in January 6th. Yeah. I, I don't think they're, they're crazy, but I don't know if they're that crazy. But then in, I don't want to bet on sanity in the middle of a revolution. That's always a losing bet. So, Well, this seems to be a time when, when everyone in America thinks that they're vulnerable and weak. And I think... Uh, you, under those circumstances, events can spiral out of control uh, from everyone's perspective. And uh, best case scenario is that's fun time. I mean, sometimes, you know, these moments where it's anybody's game uh, end up being uh, like refreshing and sort of a surge of, uh, of constructive energy comes into the void. Uh, and of course, sometimes it all falls apart and we're all left crying. So uh, we will just have to see. Um, if you had to bet uh, smiling or crying by, uh, by the day after Election Day 24. I, I will. I would. I would bet on smiling, though. Uh, I don't think that'll be a nationwide feeling for sure. Okay, smiles uh, at least half the way around. That's all the time we got. So, if you would like more content just like this, go to blazetv.com. Subscribe. Check out the Oren McIntyre Show on YouTube, Blaze TV, and indeed anywhere you find great podcasts. Until next time, I am James Polis. This is Zero Hour, and may God have mercy on us all.